Herschel goes down and Cinema leaves the Democrats. Plus, why wasn't MBD shadow banned? I mean, seriously, how could Twitter claim to really be protecting trust and safety? We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious MBD. Michael, Brendan, Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Tommy John Underwear and the new book, The Peacemaker on Ronald Reagan and the Cold War. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said Anything. So MBD, some of us were hopeful about Herschel Walker in the general. I don't think uh, any of us were hopeful about Herschel Walker in the special. It was clear he's going to have a hard time without Brian Kemp at the top of the ticket and without, without the extra push of control of the Senate being at stake. And sure enough, you know, he got close. I, I haven't looked at the, the latest count and two points or something, but loses to Raphael Warnock, who, I mean, this is just. <laughs> this is just incredibly frustrating and a major indictment of the Trump era Republican Party. Four shots at Raphael Warnock, you know, this radical progressive with his own personal issues, not as numerous or serious as Herschel's. And, you know, his church, it's been a drumbeat of stories about his church evicting tenants from its low income housing. <laughs> and Republicans had four shots at him to defeat him and have failed every single time yeah they failed and it's in some ways you do have to give warnock some credit um mm -hmm. warnock, no, definitely. warnock has uh an appealing presentation personally uh he also very much unlike stacy abrams he campaigned in the state right like stacy abrams campaigned for the view or for uh, you know, the press in Washington, D.C. or in New York. Um, and I think that was the difference between uh, Warnock and Stacey Abrams and why Warnock triumphed where Stacey Abrams failed. Also, obviously, Brian Kemp was a much better candidate. Um, and it is an indictment of the Republican Party, and it, and it cuts both ways. I mean, the, the theory of was, you know, Republicans could run – you know, uh, Kelly Loeffler or Purdue in Georgia and win because they seemed conventional, but events transpired to make them very Trumpy, um, set them against the very popular governor. Uh, and they were washed out. Then to cleanse the palate, we decided to go with a very Trumpy, uh, candidate, a former football star whose, whose real claim to fame is 30 years old in Georgia and Georgia has, endured massive in-migration in the last 25 years. Um, you know, so Herschel Walker is not a name everybody in Georgia knew. Uh, he was picked possibly because he, he played in Donald Trump's football league. Mm -hmm. um, the generals, right? Yeah. And yeah, the New Jersey team, I think. And he just, you know, he was not compelling. He, he did little, uh, I mean, he interrupted his own campaign rallies to talk about the differences between werewolves and vampires, and things like that, <laughs> uh, which actually I like. I mean, that was kind of endearing to me, but um, it just wasn't a serious candidacy. And, and we were doomed uh, after the once it went yeah. to the runoff. 
So, Maddie, I, I, I find Herschel kind of charming, but uh, a, a lot of suburban voters in uh, Georgia didn't. And it, it seemed as though maybe there's going to be a Republican wave, I thought there would be, that was going to uh, overcome his manifest deficiencies as a, as a person and as a candidate. And that didn't happen. Yeah, I think, as you said before, we we lost faith after the initial wave of defeats of Trump type candidates. So we saw that in Pennsylvania, we saw it in Arizona, Wisconsin, Nevada. And so this was entirely expected. It is, of course, partly because of his liability, his personal life and the skeleton closet didn't bode very well for him. But I think also a big part of this is to do with the early voting game that the Democrats have just played so much better than Republicans, in part because Trump has done a lot to to push people push that out of the conversation entirely as a possibility. But the, the fact is a month is a much longer time than three days in terms of mobilizing voters. Um, you don't have the issue of weather and other things that can happen on the day that that stop people turning out in larger numbers. And I think we saw this very clearly in Georgia. Um, there were record high levels of early and absentee voting. Nearly two million people cast a ballot before the Tuesday vote. Um, and a lot of those were, were voting Democrat, disproportionately voting Democrat. So I think that is a big part of the story here. So, Charlie, you are um, uh, on a tear on how Republicans have just made terrible choices and thrown away so many seats here. But let me try a couple devil's advocate arguments, set you up with them. <clears throat> One, uh, well, yeah, Herschel wasn't great, but the fundraising disparity between him and Warnock was enormous. And if you can somehow switch it or maybe get an even playing field, maybe Walker ekes out a narrow win. Sure, he'd underperform other Republican statewide candidates in Georgia, but maybe he wins if there, there wasn't the structural <clears throat> problem that, that has developed. And we saw it all across the map this year, fundraising. Two, well, yeah, okay, Herschel wasn't great and, and Trump was the one who got him in the race in, in the first place. But Every other Republican was basically on board. It wasn't like Mitch said, oh, we're, you know, I'm not supporting Herschel or Herschel's going down. And look at the the pick from Brian Kemp, Kelly Leffler. You know, she wasn't great shakes either. And she was the establishment pick and she lost to, to Warnock as well. And finally, you might say, oh, just a conventional Republican is so much more, a generic Republican is so much more palatable than, than people. But actually, coming up with a real life generic Republican is hard, as, as the, the Leffler example shows. Well, Leffler didn't run in 2022. She ran in 2020. And in 2022, Georgia went very Republican except in that race. Every single statewide candidate in Georgia won between five points and nine points. The State House of Representatives went 103 Republicans, 76 Democrats. The State Senate went 34 Republicans, 22 Democrats. Herschel Walker did more than 10 points worse than Brian Kemp. So I don't find that convincing. Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, who won by even more than Kemp, picked a fight with Trump and won. And we're told that picking a fight with Trump is suicide because it marginalizes Republican voters 
that are necessary. Apparently, that's not true. What is true is that if you pick the monsters to run for public office, the independents and moderate Republicans that you need will revolt. And so they did. And I don't think we need to stick within Georgia's borders to see that this is what happened. We can just look elsewhere. The Trumpy fringe candidates lost. Dr. Oz lost. Blake Masters lost. Look who won. It's not about being a conservative or not a conservative or a moderate or a rhino or a fighter. Ron DeSantis won by 20 points. Marco Rubio won by 17. Brian Kemp won by 8. Even in Ohio, J.D. Vance won by 8. And Mike DeWine won by 22, I think this is clear. I think it's clear in Georgia. I think it's clear in the country at large. And I don't really think it should be that surprising For some reason, the Republican Party convinced itself that the direction in which Trump took them in 2016 was brilliant, was a corrective. Trump got 46% of the vote in 2016, and he was running against the least popular candidate in recent American history. Republicans can decide. And yes, there was a fundraising discrepancy, but that, for what it's worth, was not the much-hated Mitch McConnell's fault. Look who did spend money. McConnell endorsed Walker early when it became clear he was going to be the nominee once Trump had put him up to it, and then spent $18 million on him. Rick Scott, meanwhile, at the NRSC, spent next to nothing, and Donald Trump spent nothing. I just think this is a fairly clear-cut example of primary voters having got it wrong, and of Donald Trump's pernicious influence within the party. And the question is now whether Republicans want to do anything about it or not. If they want to lose, then they'll keep doing what they're doing. If they want to win, they'll change course. So, Charlie, uh, you, you uh, we had the, the news this morning that cinema is becoming an independent. She's still going to caucus with the Democrats, which l- limits the, the impact of this move. But still, it's a it's a, a, a notable event, and you are much closer to the cinema situation than any of the rest of us because you're the only one of us that actually sh- sat next to uh, Kristen Cinema on a plane once. So you're the expert. Yeah, I mean that gives me essentially insight into everything. <laughs> I think that I think that there's. There's a couple of things here that are of interest. The first is that this is a repudiation of the Democratic Party. Now, Kirsten Sinema is not a Republican. She doesn't want to become a Republican. In the Arizona Republic piece in which she announced that she was going to be an independent, she made it clear, for example, that her maximalist position on abortion is not going to change. On a bunch of issues, she would fit quite neatly into the Republican Party in the Susan Collins mold. But there are disqualifying caveats. And she doesn't see herself as a Republican. She's not going to become one. But she did up until recently see herself as a Democrat. That's the move she's made. She's moved from being a Democrat to being an independent. So to say, as I've seen some Democrats, 
journalist say? Oh, well, she's just doing a pox on both houses. Well, she is, but she's moved from being a Democrat to not being a Democrat. And that means that the vast majority of the criticisms that she leveled in that piece must be regarded as being aimed at the Democrats because she already wasn't a Republican. She already ran against Republicans. She said, in effect, stop bullying me. Well, that's on the Democrats. She said, in effect, the parties are too extreme. Well, that's on the Democrats. She said that the seat was not owned by the Democratic or Republican parties. Well, she left the Republican Party, uh, the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party. So this is a repudiation. I think, tactically speaking, as you say, it won't make much difference in the Senate, but also it is clearly an attempt to avoid a primary. But that in and of itself reinforces the point. This is a repudiation of the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party wants to primary her. Why does the Democratic Party want to primary her? Because she's not on board with all of its agenda and she would not consent to abolish the filibuster. So this should be a warning sign for Democrats too. And I'll finish by saying what we said last time we talked about the two parties just after the election, that the Republicans really screwed up here. They screwed up almost across the board in the last election. The Democrats would be making an enormous blunder if they thought that what happened on November 8th was an endorsement of them. It was not, and the Kirsten Cinema on you should underscore that. So MBD, Bill Shear had a good Twitter thread, a, a Democrat political analyst who's quite acute, just making the point that they, there are a lot of progressives that wanted this to happen. They wanted to chase her out of the party. Right. And he was comparing it to the Joe Lieberman situation where Joe Lieberman, yeah, cinema is not with where most Democrats are on, on economics, but she voted for these big spending bills, right? She voted for the initial COVID bill and the, and the, the Green New Deal infrastructure uh, bill, and uh, but but Lieberman was was on the other side on a hugely consequential um, issue that was existential at the time for a lot of Democrats. You know, the the Iraq war and the war on terror in a deep blue state where you could um, afford to fool around trying to take Lieberman down, knowing, you know, if you uh, if, if you did it and got got someone significantly to his left that wasn't that appealing, that candidate could probably win, too. But uh, Lieberman says, OK, goodbye. I'm becoming independent and wins as an independent and is is more alienated from the Democrats than he would have been, of course, if he'd been part of the caucus in good standing. And it comes back to bite them on uh, Obamacare, uh, which he, he moderates to at least to some extent. And so Shear's like, I, I hope you know what you're doing with with cinema here because you're you're getting your way. You're chasing her from the party out of the party. Right. And that's why it's important for. um when the Senate has the operating structure it does now where a leadership uh, in the Senate, McConnell on one side or Schumer on the other has so much sway and so much uh, power. It's important for leadership to be sensitive to these vulnerable members because you can lose them. Um, And I think McConnell has done a job of holding together a coalition that can have Ted Cruz on one side and Susan Collins on the other and accomplish as much as possible as you can with that thing. But understanding that the red lines for Susan Collins are not just some personal peccadillo in most cases. They're, they're set by voters in that, in that uh, Senator's state. And the same dynamic is at work here in Arizona where, um, Arizona likes, you know, mavericky 
politicians. They liked John McCain because he wasn't a typical Republican. And, you know, Democrats, Republicans often resented that fact. Um, and it's the same thing now happening with cinema where she has a path to become more popular as an independent um, and Democrats are fuming. Well, it's, it's partly their fault. So Maddie, exit question to you first, going back to the Georgia situation. So Republicans will learn their lesson from the midterms and readjust accordingly. Yes or no? Uh, yes, I think so. Charlie. Yes, I think so too. I sense it. I, I'm often wrong, but this one seems clear. I'm a deep. Uh, nobody learns anything in politics. Any improvement will be by accident. <laughs> <laughs> well said. I'm still going with Maddie and and Charlie. Yes, you know, so, somewhat. Yes. I mean, the the, uh, the the big the big question is Trump 24, obviously, but he, he's he's clearly been been hurt. So with that, let's pause. And hear from our friends at Tommy John. Don't make your loved ones face the dead of winter in old T-shirts, ancient underwear, and ratty sweats. Help them fight cold with Cozy. Give the gift of Tommy John. And Tommy John, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better. Shop Tommy John's Wrap It Up sale right now. And give the gift of comfort to everyone on your list, including yourself, with new Tommy John underwear, loungewear, and pajamas with over 8 million. Sorry. I Wow. I drastically underestimated this 18, 18 million pairs sold. Giving Tommy John has become a holiday tradition. 97% of women and men love getting a gift from Tommy John. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. Celebrate softness season with the gift of new Tommy John underwear, loungewear, and pajamas. Every gift's backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear, or it's free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's Wrap It Up sale and get 30% off everything at Tommy John. Dot com slash editors order now so your gifts arrive before the holidays 30% off at tommyjohn.com slash editors tommyjohn.com slash editors see the site for details please check it out everyone so MBD let me start with you again shadow banning this was a, a word associated with paranoia and conspiracy theories related to Twitter, various uh, accounts would uh, not seem to be taking off the, the way they had in the past or somehow being suppressed or not gaining followers at the, the, the rate that would be expected. And, you, you know, you, you hear about shadow banning on Twitter, people complaining about sh shadow banning, and then you'd have Twitter officials say, oh, no, shadow banning. What are you talking about? We would never do that. And then Barry Weiss is out with the latest installment, the second installment of the Twitter files, and she has these screenshots of these uh, various accounts that uh, had, had settings that clearly constituted shadow banning. Yeah. I mean, basically, Twitter created a, a kind of private extreme definition of what shadow banning would be, which would be that no one could find your tweets if they searched for them on Twitter. But what most people meant by it was that there was some kind of mechanism or, or limitation that prevented people who chose to follow you from seeing their tweets. And I mean, I'm even getting messages this morning saying, 
uh, you know, I'm seeing your tweets on my timeline for the first time in years. Uh, and I've been following you the whole time. So there, what we saw in this report was that Twitter had a variety of terms they used and a variety of styles of suppression or uh, boosting of content across the site. And that the, the way that these, um, uh, the way that these rules were applied was plainly politicized in Twitter, right? I mean, the, the, the rules that they had were constantly interpreted in a way that favored Mm -hmm. progressives and disfavored conservatives. And partly because many liberals, I think, genuinely believe that common conservative beliefs, common human beliefs are harmful, uh, are disinformation, right? So like, if you believe that there are men and there are women and no other types, Um, and no, uh, changing squads between them, you know, you are a danger. And so you get limited in some way. Um, so conservatives suspected this was happening. You could feel it. I mean, you could feel, um, times when your reach just sort of stopped, uh, and it seemed mysterious. Um, you could feel, I mean, if you've been on Twitter long enough and you're in, uh, political journalism, you could see how liberals tended to get verified much faster than conservatives, uh, depending on their following, you know, that, you know, I would have to get 20,000 followers before my, you know, institution could lobby for Twitter to verify me. Whereas, you know, a young liberal journalist would instantly get it at. 4,000 followers. So like, it was obvious that this was happening and it's good to see it coming out. I'd really like to see more data and, and on even what you'd really want to see from these Twitter files is how deep did it go? Like how invasive was it? Were were they going after like how small were the accounts they were going after and limiting? Um, Mm -hmm. And in what ways? And, um, you know, Elon Musk has promised some form of transparency on this, that you'll get to know what your status was. I don't know if that means historically or just presently. Uh, but um, anyway, it was, it was it is really fascinating. And I'm sorry, but like there is a kind of uh, similarity to the way the Chinese Communist Party manages politics across Huawei's networks in China. Uh, yeah, so they called it boosting. Uh, so Maddie, they called it <clears throat> visibility filtering. You have this guy who is head of trust and safety. You all, you all, Roth saying that actually, you know, there's a problem that safety um, capitalized was under enforcing their policies, so they're using these various technical spam violations to try to to get at people. It uh, they. They limited the reach of this doctor whose last name I don't know how to pronounce because I've only seen it and haven't heard it. So I'm not going to attempt, but Dr. J.B., who was, he's out of Stanford and was an early critic of lockdowns and said they would harm children. And, and uh, you have the misinformation police at Twitter say, oh, we, we got we to limit the spread of that. That would be 
really harmful if that information got out. And they were totally obsessed with libs of TikTok, you know, and, and the offense of libs of TikTok was just publishing TikTok videos on Twitter. It was absurd. Yeah, I mean, the strangest part is the the lack of transparency because they're clearly making moral and political judgments here, uh, which you could you could argue they're entitled to do, but why why not say that's what you're doing? Why not uh, be honest about it? It's it's interesting that that Musk has decided to release this the way that he has. I know he's he's been criticised for it. Why not just release it? everything and then the mainstream media will be forced to cover it? But actually, I think it's quite a clever strategy because the idea here is that just as this was. Um, this happened on Twitter and, and therefore it, the problem started with Twitter. Well, so is the solution because here you have Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi releasing this stuff in, in dribbles and everybody's hooked to Twitter. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. Twitter is Twitter is self-correcting under Musk, uh, which is a, a clever strategy. Yeah, um, the amount think, of attention that's been showered on Twitter <laughs> the last month. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it, it directs everyone there because everyone has no – that's the only source, so everyone has no choice but to to link back to it. Um, I think the most disturbing part of the story to me was the uh, the, the Baker stuff with the mm-hmm. with the Hunter Biden story. And, and there, there you have something that really crosses the line of, well, you have former – a former FBI – uh, official in in a sort of conspiracy of censorship, which not just social media censorship, but suppressing a New York Post story, which everyone now accepts was credible. So, Charlie, one theme of yours when we've been talking about social media for years now is just let's have transparency, um, have clear rules that people know whether they're how, how to abide by them and whether they're violating them. And let's have the social media company let us know what they're doing and, and uh, in real time. And this, this was the complete opposite of that. Right. The two things that irritate me here as a user are that Twitter had this completely opaque Byzantine system for putting its thumb on the scales according to whichever fads came along or the personal views of their employees dressed up, of course, in neutral language about safety, and denied it. I will say it until I'm blue in the face. Twitter's a private company. It can do what it wants. Thank you to the First Amendment. But as a user, I would like to know what it's doing. And I certainly don't want it to lie to me. And there is actually a point at which businesses are not under American law permitted to lie about what they're doing to their consumers. The second thing that's irritated me is the speed with which many, perhaps most, progressive journalists have moved from this wasn't happening, this is a conservative conspiracy theory this is whining to well yes of course it was happening and it was good pick one just come out and say if you think it that twitter should put its thumb on the scales in a way that benefits progressive pieties but don't spend years arguing that the people who had noticed that it was happening were q and on level liars 
And then when it turns out that they were right, say, yeah, obviously. It reminds me of the Ezra Klein approach to Obamacare, where between the passage of the law and its implementation, he would insist that this wasn't going to happen and that wasn't going to happen and you wouldn't lose your doctor and rates wouldn't go up and it wouldn't. And then when Obamacare was implemented and many of the things that its critics had suggested would result, did in fact result, he said, well, of course they resulted, you enumerate fools. You can't add more people into the pools without changing the market. It's infuriating. It drives people crazy. So I think it is a good thing for users of Twitter, I'm much less interested in it from a global perspective or from a government perspective, but for users of Twitter, of which I'm one, this is a good thing. I would like to have that service that I use to read news and occasionally send out my own stuff, be transparent about what it's doing so that I know what to expect and I know what I'm getting rather than occasionally being confused as to why I wasn't seeing uh, the content that I expected. So MBD, extra question to you. Rate how big a deal the Twitter story is in the scheme of things. You know, we have a war in Ukraine. We have a border crisis. We've had the midterms. We have this Russian prisoner swap, which we're just about to get to. So just in the scheme of things, how, how big a deal is this in terms of American life, the Amer- American press and information from zero to 10? Zero, it's nothing burger, 10 thermonuclear uh i think it's i'm gonna say an eight actually a strong eight that um this is the forum on which powerful people um powerful influencers converge on and create conventional wisdom about our politics and culture and i guess i'm combining it with you know an observation that Matt Iglesias had in a recent newsletter of his, that when he started Vox, basically Vox was at the mercy of Facebook, which hugely privileged identity politics content and far left views mm-hmm. across its site. And in fact, we felt, all of us felt this enormous shift in American politics that was in some way faked up mm-hmm. by a small mm-hmm. number of people operating in Silicon Valley. Sure. Yeah, who are tur- turning the knobs. Right. And I think this has actually led to this point where I think everyone listening to this probably knows someone who has gone a bit mad and conspiratorial in the last decade because they feel this kind of fakery uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the world as a presence. Um, mm-hmm. And it slips into everything, too, because of the way social media works. You know, I remember I did a story a couple of years ago, fake news becomes a way of life where I documented the phrase, mostly peaceful protests across the New yeah. York times in one month. And in fact, yeah. it's the repetition of that phrase across, you know, 30 news stories across, you know, a month in the New York times. And then in other outlets and broadcast that makes the world present itself to people as, um, a counterfeit. So I think I think this is actually mm-hmm. hugely consequential to our politics and culture. I think the the angriest I, I have been in a very long time was in the mostly peaceful phase of uh, of our national life. That, that that phrase, the the excuses made for the violence, and just the 
rank, it's easy to forget now, but the rank hypocrisy, you know, every time there were three people walking together on a beach in Jacksonville, it was, you know, it was uh, highlighted on, on CNN as a threat to our, our right. health and safety. And then you have these massive protests. And, I mean, and that's, even the BBC had like a headline, like 29 police officers injured in mostly peaceful protests. Yeah. <laughs> so Maddie, where are you? Zero to 10. Um, I really agree with Michael. I, th- I think it is, it is high. And I, I don't just mean that for, for people who are very online as we all are. Um, but I think it, it does affect this broader conversation about mm-hmm. the role of big tech and how it's involved in day-to-day life. And especially with uh, younger generations as well, who've grown up as digital natives, it's sort of inescapable now. So these questions do matter. Yeah. So, so you're, you're an eight. Oh, yes. I mean, Charlie, we have two eights on the board. I think it's about a three. I think it probably feels more important to us because we use it and it has ramifications within our world, but our world is not most people's world. Thank God. And Twitter is largely irrelevant. I remember writing pieces for the magazine after 2016, pushing back against the idea that the 2016 election had been moved by Facebook, by Russian ads or Cambridge Analytica, or the prevalence of Ben Shapiro. And I feel the same now. The idea, and it has been proposed, that the Hunter Biden story, outrageous as Twitter's behavior was, had a meaningful effect on the outcome of that election. I think it's silly. I think that Twitter has hurt the Democrats more than it's helped them by creating an echo chamber from which they can't escape. And I think that the effects on the real world of Twitter moderation are pretty low. So Charlie, we just so so uh, more directly address if you don't mind. So MBD and Maddie are sort of making an, an elite case. You know, the elite elite views really matter. They have all these follow-on effects, and Twitter and other social media outlets ha- have this outsized effect on setting the, the thinking of the of the elite. So it, so it matters. You know, e- even if uh, most of the people we know don't pay attention to Twitter, it that that still has an enormous weight. I'm just not sure that's true. I see Twitter more as a symptom of it than as a cause. Mm-hmm. A, a, a symptom meaning the uh, the elite controls Twitter rather than Twitter controlling the elite? Correct. I mean, to so, a certain extent, there's a feedback loop. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you're going to see a great deal of difference in the way in which American elites think and argue and what they believe in two years than we've seen over the previous two. So I'm a four. So I, I was I was almost budged by MBD and Maddie, but then budged up a little bit. But then but then Ch- Charlie uh, Ch- Ch- Charlie uh, uh, reconvinced me that four is correct, just because I I just do think Twitter's influence is vastly exaggerated and just looms incredibly large and the consciousness of those of us in the journalism and politics business in a way it doesn't doesn't translate or matter 
uh, in real life as much. With that, let's pause and hear from our second sponsor. This episode, still looking to give or even receive one of the best books of the year this holiday season, William in Bowden's masterful new account, The Peacemaker. Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink is just what you're looking for. And The Peacemaker in Bowden chronicles how Ronald Reagan and his national security team confronted the Soviets, reduced the nuclear threat, promoted freedom around the world, and won the Cold War. Robert Gates calls the book remarkable, and John Lewis Gaddis, a scholarly giant, raves The Peacemaker is thoroughly researched, full of fresh information, and will shape all future studies of the role the United States played in ending the Cold War. Based on thousands of pages of newly declassified documents and interviews with senior Reagan officials, The Peacemaker paints a new picture of one of America's most consequential presidents. Pick up The Peacemaker today, available now from Dutton, wherever books are sold. This was obviously extremely consequential chapter in American history, and this book has been widely praised. I urge everyone to pick it up or give it as a gift this Christmas season. With that, Maddie, we had the news gratifying on one hand, disturbing on the other, that a trade had been made for Brittany Griner, this WNBA star who was held on Russia, uh, in, in Russia, got a nine-year sentence, hard labor, for having these uh, uh, vape, vape vials with uh, traces of marijuana. Uh, she, she had them. There's no doubt she had them. But the idea that you're going to sentence someone to, to nine years of hard labor over that was ridiculous and obviously um, a, a move made with, with an eye to the, the geopolitical effects. They just you know, love snatching Americans. Um, and we got her back, but the price was this so-called merchant of death an arms dealer kind of out of central casting, you know, when he was uh, the, the picture of him, when he was released, he kind of lost some weight and had kind of haircut, got a haircut and his, his, his mustache w- was uh, smaller than it had been. He didn't really look very arms deal- dealerish to me, but then you look at, him, at a picture of him in his prime. This guy's was an arm de- arms dealer <laughs> and uh, you know, he's a fairly sophisticated arms dealer. He had uh um, sophisticated cultural taste, knew six languages supposedly, but was involved in, in giving arms to the, the worst people in the world, in some cases to potentially be used against uh, uh, Americans and the criticism of this deal. No one says, oh, well, we wish, for, well, very few people say we wish Griner was, you know, rotting in, in, in a Russian uh, prison, but just that this was a bad deal, that th- this, this trade of this particular person, Griner, is basically, you know, innocent of anything serious for a really dangerous man who potentially, you know, he, he's aged more now, but potentially could uh, get back in the game is, uh, is a, a trade the U.S. government never should have made. Yeah, I mean, it's a wholly disproportionate swap for the reasons that you just mentioned. I think it's a difficult thing, though, because because the US doesn't detain people arbitrarily, because it has a functioning uh, justice system, it it isn't going to have uh, the equivalent of uh, Brittany Reiner. It's not going to have someone mm-hmm. who's doing hard labor for uh, a, a marijuana possession, despite what some Democrats suggest <laughs> that's not happening in the United States. So this is all this is always going to be the problem this is always what they're going to uh aggress for what russians and and other um f- foreign uh 
opponents are, are going to aggress for. And I think the, the unfortunate thing about this is it does make the US look very weak because they could have asked for more. Uh, there was a, a question at one point about whether um, this former US Marine was also going to be in and then they decided, no, that's not going to work. And, and really, it, it should have been a non-starter that they were going to trade this guy, this essentially war criminal for somebody uh, convicted of something so trivial. So it does make them look very weak. I, I would hate to be a politician. I would, hate, I would hate to be in charge of these types of decisions because it must be so difficult. Um, certainly, you, 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 symp you sympathise with the, the family of Greiner or anybody who's, who's, um, whose loved one is in this situation. But is it in the national, was this in the national interest? Probably not. Yeah, so MBD, I think Maddie states it well. I mean, just it's just this is this is really hard. I mean, there's a reason that Israel always swaps, you know, their prisoners for like 800 terrorists or or, or something like that because you, you don't there there is a especially in our case there, there's no direct uh, we're not holding uh, mostly innocent we're not holding Russians on. Uh, vastly more consequential charges than, than the offense they're actually guilty of. So it's not a direct one-on-one -on -one deal. And you're just faced um, with this. You want to leave her there or not? Yeah. You know, th this, this is the deal you have on the table. Um, you're not going to, you know, again, you're not going to trade her for, for a, a, another innocent, relatively innocent um, marijuana offender. You're going to trade her for someone who's guilty of something worse. The, the question is, you know, do, do you go this far? Do you go to this guy? But I think we need to have a little modesty about uh, commenting on it from the outside because we just don't know. You know, it's easy to say you should have struck a better deal when you're when you're not the one confronted with the particulars of negotiation well, like this. Well, I don't I actually I'm on the other side a little bit where I, I think there I just accept that there is an asymmetry here uh, mm -hmm. and um, we don't you know, we don't put uh, Russian, you know, hockey players who might have like a steroid abuse issue or something like that into gulags and then try to trade them for American spies in Russia. Like we, we don't play the game that way. And so there's always going to be this asymmetry and, you know, this asymmetry has kind of been contemplated since the beginning of civilization. And, you know, the Bible itself is, commands the mm -hmm. Jewish people to ransom their captives. Uh, and that does give some initiative to bad players like Vladimir Putin. Um, on the other side, I mean, Victor Bout is uh, human scum, but I don't know what use he really is to Russia uh, mm -hmm. other than, you know, maybe debriefing him. Uh, and it's, it, not, it's not like he's going to go and get get their uh, their their missiles that are depleted, and they need to shoot at Ukrainian power stations. Right. Uh, what, what, I mean, Viktor Bout's career was made on the breakup of the Soviet Union, and that is not, you know, that's it's not a business you can just jump back into. Do you know what I mean? Like as mm -hmm. soon as you get your right. black market arms dealer license. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. work that way. I mean, it might work that way if somehow the United States uses the uh, war in Ukraine to to destabilize the regime in Moscow. <laughs> maybe maybe Victor mm -hmm. Bout could have a second second life uh, as an arms dealer. But um, 
I don't, I don't see that being a danger. So I say, make the trades you can, because we have a, a moral imperative to rescue the innocent um, or the, or the unjustly treated. Unjustly treated. Yeah. That's the best way to put it. Charlie. I hate stories like this because they're impossible to pause in a way that will seem rational or just to everyone. If Brittany Reiner were my sister, I would want the United States to pay any price. But if Brittany Reiner were my sister and I were in a position in which I had to make that decision, I would, of course, have to recuse myself because the interests of the United States and my interests would be rather different. Unfortunately, when you start to debate these questions, a lot of people begin to behave as if Brittany Reiner is their sister Mm -hmm. and make it out that anyone who objects to the deal is mean. And I remember writing about Bo Bergdahl back in the day and being told that Obama's decision was the correct one because the United States does not leave people behind and will pay any price to get them back, which was, of course, not true. Any price would mean giving them nuclear weapons. Why don't we give them an aircraft carrier while we're at it? We wouldn't have done that. It is reasonable, therefore, to ask whether this was a trade that was in the interest of the United States. And I think there is a strong case that it was not. Unless, as I say, we are disinterested in the nature of the deal. But obviously we are interested in the nature of the deal because we left some people behind. We didn't get everyone out. We got one person out. There are still people sitting behind bars. But I think this is a difficult prudential question for those who are in positions of power. I certainly do not envy them having to make it. But I would defend anyone who said that this was a bad deal. I don't think deserves to be met with mawkish uh, insistences that this is America and we have to get our people out. And on balance, I think we got this wrong. All right. So I'm going to ask, ask, ask a question that perhaps has somewhat been answered. So listeners, f- forgive us for the, the lack of the usual uh, drama and emotional tension around the answers to these questions. So <laughs> Maddie, uh, gun to your head, th- this is the only deal on offer. She, she can stay there for the duration or you get her back for Victor Bout. What do you do? Um, no, I don't. I don't normally make any of my best decisions with a gun to my head. So, <laughs> I, I think. I think in in that case, if it were me, I I would just um, I'd say bring her back just because I'm not suited to that kind of decision. Softy, softy. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a softy. <laughs> MBD, you'd, you'd take her back. Yeah, yeah, I, of course. And Charlie's a no. Can I reject the premise of that question a little bit in that that's not the situation in which people find themselves when making these decisions? <laughs> you mean with it's a gun to head or, or no, no other alternatives? No other alternatives. It's never the case that the deal is one time only because international relations evolve and the imperatives on both sides change. Mm-hmm. So I so don't really know how to uh, answer that. I interpreted you as a no. I think that this deal at this point in time was unbalanced. But, but, oh, 
But you you thinking it's a bad deal is also based on you can get a better deal at some point. Well, perhaps. But I, and- I think that presidents have to make a decision based on the details that they have at the moment at which they're being asked to make a trade. And I think mm-hmm. given the current circumstances and the two people involved and who we left behind in the bargain, I think this was not a balanced deal. So I, I accepting the premise of my question, I say yes. You take take the deal just because I I just think you know it's going to be it's going to be imbalanced. And um, once you're in this situation where once you're deciding you're you're making these kind of trades and and almost everyone's made them. You know Reagan made them, Trump made them. This is this is just the the kind of choices you're you're dealing with. And you know, Rich, I, 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 I yeah. I live in fear that at some point I'm going to get kidnapped by the Russians. And then when the <laughs> State Department is Say, considering, <laughs> yeah, it's considering they'll, they'll play this podcast back and yeah. I will get owned so hard on Twitter for having been so callous. All right. So let me do a quick plug for NR Plus Digital Subscription Service at nationalreview.com and a great Christmas gift. I met uh, a nice lady at an event in Milwaukee who gives 10 subscriptions to National Review a year to people on her list. She, this is traditionally, she's done this with print, but she's branched out. She's doing it with NR Plus 2. And, you know, you don't have to do 10. You can do one. That would be fantastic. Or just do one uh, yourself. We have um, all sorts of great deals running this time of year is your way around our metered paywall your way if you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads especially the most obnoxious kind of pop-up ads go away and won't distract you when you're trying to read our content your way if you want to to dig deeper into our community by commenting on articles and blog posts being part of our private facebook group and getting invitations to exclusive events and calls with our writers and editors charlie mbd and i are doing a uh, small intimate Zoom call uh, once again with a very fortunate uh, NR Plus uh, subscribers who um, I'm not sh- sure actually how this invitation works, but but you, you get invited and then there's a lottery and you, and you get selected and then we just sit down for an hour, hour, 15 minutes and just have an open informal discussion. It's always a lot of fun. Anyway, uh, NR Plus uh, is, is a great service and a really important way to support our valuable journalism. So this Christmas season, consider giving the gift of NR Plus to yourself or to someone special on your list. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go MBD. The in-laws are having a baby. Yeah, I just got the news this morning from my uh, brother-in-law that he and his wife were admitted to the hospital this morning and all signs are go. And um, it's just a great thing to add a new cousin to the tribe. Uh, and so I'm, I'm waiting patiently for the happy news any moment now. Awesome. All, all the best to everyone. Maddie, you have been assembling a nativity set and this, this could be a lame or really awesome light item depending on the sophistication and the difficulty of assembling <laughs> this. this uh, if it's just like putting on a table, a couple figures that, that doesn't count. But if it's, you know, uh, if you really have to work at it, we'll be impressed. Well, okay. So, Maybe assembling. <laughs> I mean, there there is there is some there are some really important decisions to make here. Do you have the baby Jesus in the manger from the first day you put it up, or do you wait till Christmas? I wait till Christmas. Do you have the the wise men 
around the manger or do you put them uh, on the east, the other side of the room, mm. so they can begin their ah, long journey in time for Epiphany, is, you see? Is that a tradition? <laughs> do people do that? I wasn't oh, aware yeah, 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 yeah. We well, do. yeah. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a shorty family tradition. Oh, really? Like the other yeah. side of the house? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Other side oh, yeah, of the they, they travel. Ours, like, move. The kids will move them every day. Wow. Yeah. So, see, Rich, no idea. you didn't know. So there's more to it than than you may think. Yeah. Um, uh, but there was no actual uh, on this podcast, carpentry involved. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So Charlie Kirby and the Forgotten Land. Kirby and the Forgotten Land is a game on the Nintendo Switch in which you play as Kirby, this puffy pink creature that can half fly and that swallows things and then uses them as weapons who is it seems stuck inside this bizarre foreign land where the writing all looks as if it's Thai. It's enormous fun. My kids wanted it. I didn't know about this, but my wife said that they had been going on and on and on about it. And so eventually, as a special treat, we got them this game. And of course, that means that I've been playing it more than they have because they like to watch as much as they like to play. So if you have a Nintendo Switch and you have small kids and you're wondering which game should you get next and you like games like, say, Mario Odyssey, then Kirby and the Forgotten Land is definitely the one you should settle on. So it's been a really disappointing week for me in the the news, and I'm uh, not talking about the Herschel Walker loss in Georgia. I am talking about the San Francisco Board of Supervisors has let me down yet again. It initially authorized the use of killer robots Killer robots uh, for listeners of the last episode. I, I've been practicing this all week to, uh, to 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 get over my my verbal tick that made the last episode more entertaining than it should have been. But they reversed themselves just just based on people saying the phrase "killer robots" and saying sci-fi movies. So I, I um, wrote a column about this, and uh, I. I uh, I had a in the lead a, a reference to the Terminator and Skynet, which everyone refers to, you know, when they, there's a possibility of some computer or something running out of control. And so I was reading up on the, on the Terminator, and one of these Wikipedia entries described the chase scene from the first movie in 1984 with the motorcycle and then the tractor trailer, and it just brought me right back, you know, into the the movie theater. In the 1980s, and then I went and watched the clip, and unfortunately, it, was, it didn't hold up as well as I thought. It was a little disappointing that it had loomed so large in my consciousness. It was like so, like groundbreaking and compelling, you know, at at the time. And uh, special effects being what they are now, it just it didn't it didn't feel as as uh, awe inspiring it as I uh, as I remembered it. But but hopefully, uh, when other jurisdictions do the right thing and authorize killer robots, it will uh, uh, catalyze a, a, a whole new um, um, bout of Terminator-like movies. We'll have even more awesome chase scenes. If yes, you Joe. play your cards right, Rich, you could even get chased one yourself, which should be the most <laughs> You know, I should be, I hope there's there's someone uh, from a robot firm who's a, a fan of the editors who's listening to this, and I'm going to get on the board of like a killer robot firm, um, become an official spokesman for killer, killer robots. I'm, I'm there, there's like, I'm not sure there's anyone else who's in favor of this, <laughs> at least not as strongly as I am. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is a piece by Nate Hockman, uh, the Republican cope, 
Uh, Nate is well-placed uh, ideologically to talk to more populist Republicans about the failure of candidacies like Walker and to name, and to just tell them the truth that the candidate and the people who selected him are to blame, not the establishment. And um, it's a salutary message and it's the right messenger. Maddie, what's your pick? My pick is a piece by Alexandra de Sanctis called When Human Life Begins. And she just sort of rebukes the pro-choice argument that the unborn isn't really a human. Um, I, I think that this is actually something both sides of the abortion debate do, where they ignore the strongest argument. Uh, that's clearly the pro-life strongest argument. Uh, with pro-choice, the strongest argument that we probably neglect is that choosing to continue a pregnancy in certain circumstances demands heroic courage and not everybody is prepared to be heroically courageous. And I think sometimes pro-lifers can, uh, can sort of downplay that and say, oh, well, it's just nine months. And <laughs> it's like, it's not quite how it works, especially if you don't have support. But anyway, Alexandra does a very good job of, of half of that uh, problem. Charlie? My pick is a piece by Dan McLaughlin from the magazine, Charles Schultz at 100. Dan is, it seems, a big fan of peanuts. I've picked this up from him in private conversations, but I didn't realize quite the depth of his appreciation. Of course, this is all new to me because in England, we don't really have peanuts. Charlie Brown is an American fixture, so I had to learn it all anew. But my children... Do you like like Charlie Brown? I do. My, my children have done a great deal of this work. We have all the specials, the Thanksgiving special, the Christmas mm-hmm. special, some of the others. And then there was a movie made relatively recently, which is also quite good and that my four-year-old absolutely loves. So I've got into it myself, but I appreciate Dan's deep knowledge and appreciation of Charles Schultz. Yeah. If, if, if Dan is, is into something, he has a deep knowledge of it. That's uh Goes without saying. I have to say, I, I love the Christmas special, the 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 the, the little uh, needleless uh, tree, you know, nailed together, and a couple little boards at the bottom. It is is so uh, pulls the heartstrings. But otherwise, I don't I don't really like Peanuts or Charlie Brown very much. But the the Christmas special is awesome and iconic. So my pick is a piece by uh, Seth Cropsey on uh, NRO, a woke Naval Academy hurts our military. And Seth is just a, a indispensable uh, voice and authority on Naval matters. And it's always great to have them in our pages. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcasting rebroadcast, retransmission, or countless game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Tommy John and the new book, The Peacemaker. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.